Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner with your host, Betrayed by Hospice. Thank you, Marty, for having this forum for us to discuss important issues. The reason for this show is to warn people that the hospice you once heard was compassionate and came in at the end of life to give care and support is no longer that hospice in most cases. Some of you may have had a positive experience with hospice and received compassionate care and support. Many of our guest speakers, as well as myself, have experienced a very different hospice. All hospices are not bad, but many are rogue, and they hasten death without the patient's knowledge or consent. Tonight, I want to tell you why doing this show and warning people what can happen if you blindly trust hospice, nursing homes, or some hospitals has become a passion of mine. This story is about a very special lady, Frances Souther, who was taken before it was her or God's time by a hospice in Georgia. This lady was my precious mom, who was also my best friend, and had the biggest heart, the bluest eyes, and a smile that would light up the world. She listened to everyone intently and would cheer you up, even if she was down or was in pain. She had three children, four grandchildren, and nine great-grandchildren, all who loved her very much. She was 87 at the time this happened. She was diagnosed with congestive heart failure a few years back, but was being treated successfully with medication. And as she had no cartilage around her joints and had had several surgeries to repair all but her left hip, it had left her in a great deal of pain on her left side, which caused her to be homebound many times. But other than that, she was sharp as a tack. This story is about Frances and what happened to her, but as we tell you this, Those who have lost loved ones this way can identify as to the medications used and the words that we are told by hospice supposed compassion. You will recognize them, but for those who haven't had this happen, I hope it is a wake-up call and that if you are in this situation, you will remember some of the names of the drugs and what you were told in this environment and maybe save one of your loved ones. We can't save our mom now, but we will continue to warn others about the dangers. I'd like to paint a picture of what happened from October 2016 until her premature death on June the 20th, 2017. So I have invited my dad, Derwood Souther, my sisters, Sheila Waldner and Heidi Souther, and our God-given sister, April Jenkins, who was also mom's caregiver for years, to help me tell this story. They each can help with what occurred in 2017 to help warn others that even though we have the best intentions to give our loved ones the best possible care, we can all be naive and trust wrongly. We did, and it cost us a very precious life. Going back over these records two years later, 
it brings a lot of anxiety back up. But I am passionate about wanting to keep other people from going through this, so I want to share the horrors with you. It's important that you're diligent about you and your loved one's care and that you don't blindly trust as we did. The story, this story is sometimes graphic, and for that I apologize in advance, but it is crucial as still some people do not believe it's happening. This is real, and it's like a horror story from Stephen King or Robin Cook, and I know others have experienced very similar stories watching their loved ones murder. I'd like to thank all of you today for coming out to help me tell this story. So what I'd like to do is start out by asking questions and give some discussion. At first, I'd like to start with asking my dad his experience as being the hospice chaplain for 15 years at the same facility that we entrusted mom to. He was the chaplain from 1993 until 2008. Dad, would you tell our listeners about your time as as the chaplain at this facility? Yeah, I'll be glad to. Thank you. <clears throat> as Marsha told you, I was chaplain for 15 years. My job was to visit the patients at home, and uh, I visited them every two weeks. We had a area to cover of 45 miles around the city of Warner Robins, Georgia. I went in, I talked with them, I cried with them sometimes, I prayed with them, and tried to help them in their life and in their suffering. While I was there, I met and knew all of the nurses at that uh, hospice, and I knew to, uh, I got to where I knew them well enough that I felt that they were part of my family. I even felt that they were the angels of mercy that such people are considered as being. I would like to tell you later some of the other things that changed my mind from calling them angels of mercy to demons from, well, you know where. And that's all I need to say right now, Marsha. I'll turn it over to you. Okay. Thank you, Daddy. And... Mid-October of 2016, blood work had indicated that mom was anemic and her medical doctor advised us to take her to the hospital. When we went there, they performed a colonoscopy and an endoscopy, endoscopy, but they found nothing. Just to show you a little bit about my mom, I didn't want the test to be done because the doctor had said she couldn't have her hip replaced, the cartilage, because if she went under, she might not come out. So I was worried about her going under, even in that twilight stage. So I cried, and Mama told the doctor that if it was going to upset her daughter, she wouldn't go through it. And I said, well, Mom, is it something you want to do? If you have cancer, really, are you going to be treated for it? And she goes, I want to know, but if it's going to upset you, I won't do it. 
I backed off, and they did it, and we stood by, and as soon as she came out, she was fine, but they didn't find anything. At that time, her doctor had come in and talked to my sister, my dad and I, and said because she had congestive heart failure that she did qualify for hospice and that it would be easier for her. She wouldn't have to go to the doctor anymore directly to him, that she'd have somebody come in because getting in and out of the car with no cartilage in her hip was very painful for her. At that time, we declined. Later, we talked about the hospice option, and we felt that it was safe since Dad had been the chaplain, and they knew how much he loved his wife. So we thought they were safe. So Sheila, um, on November the 18th, 2016, you met with the hospice people at home. Can you tell us about your discussion? Well, sure. You and I had discussed and, and Dad had discussed about getting more help for them. Um, and we felt that hospice would be a good situation for that because we trusted them and we knew that they knew mom and dad. So I went over all the, I, we talked at length and then I went over all the paperwork with them and there was something in there that just didn't feel quite right. So I specifically said to the nurse that was there that day, are you going to hasten my mother's death? And she assured me that they would never do anything to hasten her death, but they would do nothing to prolong it. And I said, that's fine. We don't want mom to suffer, but I don't want you to hasten her death. And so we signed the forms and, and got hospice all set up to come in and help mom out. Okay. Um, so she was enrolled on that day, November the 18th, and everything seemed okay until I received a call that she had fallen and they wanted to put her in a hospital bed. And I, I said, well, you know, is she anemic? She'd been anemic before. Is that what happened? And the nurse informed me they would no longer be doing blood work on her. That just wasn't part of their program. And there was no explanation for the fall. And I said, if you put her in a bed, she's going to lose the will to live. I, I just don't think that's a good idea. But, you know, I'll talk to my parents about it, which I did. And they had already told them that she did not want to go in a bed, period. It was hard for her to get in and out of a bed. She slept in a, um, a lift chair, an automatic lift chair, because that was easier for her. She couldn't swing her hip around. So they had already told her. Later, when we got the records, and this is something I will say several times tonight, it is important that you get the medical records because it is so enlightening. You just wouldn't imagine how much I have found out by reading this. In the medical records, it states that the daughter never bothered to call us back and tell us whether or not her parents wanted the hospital bed. My parents had told them they didn't want the hospital bed, and yet they were acting like my parents didn't have the mind or the ability to make decisions for themselves. At that time, I didn't know that that's what they thought about my parents, and we found that out later. On December the 9th, 19th, 2016, just shortly thereafter, Mom fell on the floor again. And, Dad, I would like for you to come on and tell us what happened and how Mom fell. I'll be glad to. I want to tell you about uh, this stand-up chair. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is a... Uh, 
What is the chair that gives you all the comfort? It's a lift chair. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, it's operated by the person who is sitting in it with a, a button to push. It will lay a person back down almost to sleep. It will also raise a person up so that their feet will touch the floor and they'll be able to, with help, get up and use the her bedside potty, which was right at her side. We had the first of our so-called, and at that time it was, um, when I worked there for 15 years, we had uh, chartered nurses up Assistants. There are no chartered nurses' assistants now. They are called help, help at home. And uh, the problem with that is they have no training. They know nothing about help. They know nothing about taking care of sick people. Now, this young lady that came, by the way, was the first and the best one that we had. And she worked well uh, with helping my wife, with uh, talking with her, with comforting and so forth. But I had been lifting her up from her chair and I did it by a double wrist grab to make certain that there was no slip. And I pulled her straight up so that she was standing before she even put her hand on the walker. This young lady didn't know to do that. Instead, she leaned down and took my wife's hand, both of them, and pulled her straight out of the chair, not up, straight out of the chair. Her feet slid on the carpet, and she dropped down on the floor. Uh, I think she broke her coccyx that day. She had pain with it from then on. After that, we never saw this particular uh, nurse helper come in. They said that they needed her somewhere else. Didn't tell us where. But they brought in another young lady who did nothing whatsoever but turn the chair around behind the wife's chair and played with her phone for three hours. We complained about it and uh they gave us another lady. This one was 70 years old. She was unable to help. And she wasn't able to, and she didn't know how to. The next one was another lady, rather old, with bad knees. And she did a better job of bathing my wife and doing some things around in the house, but 
not much. After her, it got worse and worse. And my wife complained to the nurse about it. The nurse was upset that my wife complained so much, but she had good right to complain. And I think that's why I want to stop right now. Okay. Um, April, thank you for calling in. Um, Can you tell our listeners what Mom told you the very next day after she fell? Okay. She told me exactly what your father said. She said that um, that the aide pulled her up and... She, it was more like she dropped up before she stood completely up. She let her go, and that's what caused her to fall on her um butt bone. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, on her backbone. But she said she um pulled her up in the chair when she fell. She was a she had the chair was not behind her. And that would made her um, fall on the floor. And she said, really, the, the CNA let her go before she was completely up. So she she asked, she failed. Mm-hmm. Okay. It. Thank mm-hmm. you, April. Um, and the welcome. reason I bring that. The reason I bring that up is when I was reading the medical records, the medical records indicate that on the way there, the HHA called back to the hospice office and said that mom had fallen and they had called 911. And that was at 2.20. I contacted the 911 um, office and got the records, and it was at 2.20 that the call was made, and the um, HHA showed up between 1 and 4, and yet in their records, and this is why, you know, one of the things that I want to point out too, records can be falsified, and this is one of those instances where it says she called on the way, and yet you just heard two people tell you exactly what happened. And so that's why I make that point. Um, so... Our records prove falsified records seem to be the norm with many victims that I've spoken to. From November the 18th through December the 26th, the medical records indicate that mom states that a pain level 8 out of 10 is acceptable to her, and she denies the nurse's multiple requests to increase her pain meds. Mom was afraid of narcotics, which the nurse knew, and mom kept a list on her calendar each time she took anything for pain, and she held out as long as she could between those times. She had been prescribed lidoderm pain patches in the past, and after the fall, the medical records indicate that she had a coccyx injury per the same visiting nurse. On December the 12th, 27th, I'm sorry, after the nurse inquired about about her pain level multiple times, she told the nurse the pain was unbearable, and they prescribed her 50 micrograms of fentanyl in addition to the hydrocodone acetophetamine she was already taking. Later, after I got the medical records and read them, I learned that she had been given 25 microgram fentanyl patch earlier 
and that now they doubled that again. We thought the fentanyl patch was like the lidoderm patch, and it's ignorance that we later regretted. At that time, nothing had been talked about fentanyl and how dangerous it was. So after this time, my sister and I noticed that when we would call her and mom didn't answer the phone, that dad started answering it, which was very unusual. Per the medical records, and as dad said, mom had told them many times that she was not satisfied with the service that they were provided. In February of 2017, Sheila and I visited at the same time and met, we, we live in all different states, so we met and visited with the hospice staff at their home. The one nurse who knew dad from before came into the kitchen and told me my mom didn't appreciate my dad because she yelled at him all the time when he didn't have his hearing aids in, and he did so much for her. I shrugged it off and said, well, if he doesn't have his hearing aids in, how else would he hear her? And I turned around and walked off, not thinking a whole lot about it. I should have. I should have taken that as a sign that there was more. And, Sheila, I'd like to ask you what you were told during that same time frame about the water in the oxygen tank. Sheila? I'm sorry, I forgot okay. I had you on mute. <laughs> okay. um, there was supposed to be water in the in the oxygen um, tank at all times to put moisture into the air as she breathed it. And the nurse was telling me how dad would forget to fill it up, and that wasn't good for mom. And she was very angry when she told me that. And um, she she finally got where she wouldn't tell mom. She'd just go over there and take care of it because it was behind mom's chair and dad, and mom couldn't see her because when she'd say something to mom about it she would mom would yell at dad about not taking care of it well I don't think mom really yelled at dad because she never did that my whole life I didn't hear her yelling at my dad um, but this nurse was very upset that mom would do that and my question would be why didn't they just take care of it they were coming in three days a week, and then, of course, April was checking it when she came in. Why didn't they just take care of it? Why was it an issue? Exactly. Um, and Dad would say, too, that Mama never yelled at him. He was pretty upset when I read to him that the nurses both um, had told us that or that we had told Dad that, that Mama yelled at them, and he said, your Mama never yelled at me. So that, that seemed exactly. to be upsets dad and by the way I didn't say but my dad is 91 so um, he lives with me now um, since he's not with his wife uh, per the medical records that I reviewed after this happened the physician her physician signed a third benefit period from May through July 2017 and shortly thereafter he left for three weeks to India so he was gone when they came and took them during this time, the, and the records indicate that the nurse fussed at mom and dad because he wasn't changing her fentanyl patch often enough. And it makes me think that they should have cut back to 25 instead of 50 micrograms if he wasn't changing it often enough and she wasn't in that much pain. But again, we were thinking fentanyl was like lidoderm, and dad was not even aware that they had up to, to the 50 micrograms. 
so it, it just is a misunderstanding and an ignorance on our part that I'm just trying to make sure that people understand these drugs, you need to test them, check them out, because you can't just trust what you're being told. On May the 31st of 2017, the medical records indicate that the patient called and states that she does not want an HHA to come today. She is not comfortable having someone come each time that she's never met. On June the 2nd, the nurse calls mom and states that they no longer will be able to support her on Mondays and Wednesdays. And they know that we have April there, who's on the phone with us, who comes on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and she couldn't change her dates. They were aware of this. So, April, I'd like to ask you, on Tuesday, June the 6th, when you went to see Mom and Dad, what, were the, what was their condition? Well, uh, when I went to see them on June the 6th, they were fine. Um, Miss Frances had a little, you know, uh, constipation, but uh, other than that, you know, they was fine. Um, I didn't see nothing uh, wrong with them. Um, you know, Miss Mr. Sutherland always joked, and um, <laughs> we always laughed and had a good time, but that particular day, Miss Frances was a little constipated. Um, and, but they seem to be fine to me. So no deterioration that you had noticed in them. And dad didn't no. seem like he was busy or weak. No, because that, like I said, that particular day she was a little constipated. And, um, of course, Mr. Southern is old and, you know, he get a little tired too, but it wasn't nothing um, major, look, you know, from the look of things. Um, maybe he was a little, you know, wore out because Miss Francis was a little constipated. But, uh, you know, because he had been up with her. But other than that, everything was fine. Okay. Okay. And when you were there, because I know when we came that you cleaned the bathrooms and the kitchen and vacuum everything, that that's also something that you do. Um, when you go there, right? Yes, I do all of that. Okay. Make sure to vacuum, yep, clean the bathroom in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Okay. And give okay. Miss uh, Francis a bath. Okay, you are <laughs> actually the only one she trusted to give her a bath. Yes, so that <laughs> that's true. Sense. Thank you. Okay, we love you, April. I just have to say that. I love that. you too. <laughs> Okay, so um, as April mentioned, during this time, Mom had been constipated, and they gave her lactulose, and she had an accident. And they called, she called for help on June the 7th, and according to their records, they state that Mom said Dad was weak, which is why she wanted assistance. The records also indicate that she was told to contact her son, they sent over an aide, and the medical records indicate later they have a meeting that day to review mom's case. The following day, the nurse called mom, and the medical records show that mom says she feels better and she's eating and drinking. No cause for alarm here is my point. Typically, the nurses showed up on Monday or Tuesday. However, out of the blue on Friday, June the 9th, 
everything happens that leads to mama's death. The two nurses show up at the house, and the medical records state the house was in a mess. There was a smell of fish, and there was stuff all over the kitchen counter. There were dirty and clean clothes on the couch, and the trash was overflowing. Dad had prepared grits and catfish, which is his favorite breakfast meal, for them that morning, and they always ate a late meal. And Dad would put the dishes in the sink. They'd watch TV. They'd take a nap. Then Dad gets up and does the dishes, takes out the trash, does whatever. Mom folds the clothes. Dad takes Mom the clothes. She folds the clothes. This is daily. And admittedly, I will say, Dad does make a mess in the kitchen. But he, he'll he go back and clean it up later. And April it normally is there on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and she also cleans up the kitchen, vacuums and cleans the bathroom. So this is just a typical day for my parents. So on this day, Dad, I'm going to ask you to step in here. Tell us what happened on the 9th of June, in your own words. We were doing our usual of sleep after breakfast. And they came in. We lived in a neighborhood that we were very safe in. I left the garage door open and the kitchen door open. And they came in through the garage door and the kitchen door and came in very abruptly. Um, And the head nurse of the two said, we're taking you to our, uh, what shall I call it? Hospice wing. Yeah, it's not not what I usually call it. But they said they were taking us both there so that I could get some rest. And they would bring us back on Tuesday. Uh, Neither of us thought that. Uh, She would never have done it, however, if they had not told the big lie that they were taking me to get me rested. She loved me as much as I loved her, and she was willing to go if I was going to be getting some help. She has been saying for years, and especially after she got sick so that she had to be in the chair, she said she wanted to live her life out in our house, and she did not ever want to leave it again. She she just wanted to die there. They knew that. And they knew that the only way they could get her out of that house was to tell the lie that it was for my benefit. So I was uh, going to uh, cross her uh, for two reasons. One, One, I was quite shocked at the idea, and two, if she was not going to... uh, argue with them about it I wasn't either so we waited about two hours the ambulance came 
and took her, and then the head nurse carried me in her car over to the facility. The facility was a wing of the smaller hospital south of our city, and um, it was an excellent place. It had been a place for the birthing of children, but they evidently uh, built another area for that. And these were six large rooms, each with a bath, uh, each with chairs, each with a table, each with a, a sofa that could be pulled out. People could come there and stay. We stayed there the full time that she was there. Either three or four of us were in the room at all times. And that was how they had her at their mercy and us pretty much with our hands tied. Back to you, Marcia. Okay. So on this day, Mom called me. She called all of her kids. Uh, she called me. I was outside mowing the grass, so I didn't get the call. She didn't leave. She left me a message to call, but when I called, she wasn't there, so I called my sister because Mom didn't say what it was about. But, Sheila, she talked to you, and you talked to the nurse. Can you tell us, unmute yourself, and tell us what, transpired certainly well mom called me and asked me if I could come to Georgia and care for her and dad and of course I said yes but then I said well what's what's happened and she told me that the hospice nurses and she gave she called their names were there and there was an ambulance on the way and they were taking both my parents in for respite care to the hospice facility um and that they would, it was big, and I said, well, why? And she told me dad was very tired and he needed some rest. And so they were going to take him and let dad rest and her rest and they'd take care of her. So I asked if I could, if I needed to come right then and mom said no, that, that it was fine. And I told her I wanted to talk to the nurse that was there. So I, the nurse went outside and we talked for a while. Um, and it was the same nurse who had enrolled mom who had told me, before that they wouldn't do anything to hasten her death and she told me that day that her, my parents would be fine for a few days and I could come as soon as I could get away and take them home and but that we would need to be looking into 24-hour care and I said we'll be glad to do that no problem and I said I will get there as soon as I can so I felt comfortable with this because I felt like they were going to take care of mom dad was going to get some rest and everything was going to be fine had no clue of the horror that was to come. Back to you, Marsha. Okay. Heidi, and Heidi is my other sister. Um, Mom called yeah. you and David and talked to you. What What was the conversation, and was there any urgency that you needed to come over there quickly because somebody's help? So what, what is your opinion about the conversation? And you saw more, Mom more frequently than we did. So during this period of time, had you noticed she had digressed any? Not at all. Um, 
the first indication that we had something was going on, uh, Mom had called and said, we're moving. And David said, what do you mean you're moving? And she, that's when we found out she was going to Perry. And he said, when were you going to tell us? And they said, well, the ambulance is on the way. We just found out. So it happened very quickly. And when I talked to her, she sounded fine. She sounded like she always did. I had not, I mean, I had gone over and changed her patch once between that time, you know, around that time for her. And she told me to put gloves on, which should have been an indication it wasn't lidoderm anymore. But I had no idea at that time what fentanyl was either. And so I put on the gloves and changed the patch and that, you know, everything was fine. But when I talked to her that Friday, she was you know, a little concerned about going, leaving the house, but since dad needed the rest, she was willing to do it. I also talked to her the next day, the Saturday, after they had gotten settled in and everything, you know, and she had asked that David come and pick dad up because they had forgotten some of his medications and he needed uh, some clothes too. They didn't pack enough clothes for him. So David, you know, left and went to the hospital and I talked to mom while he was on the way down there and she seemed fine. She said the food was good, and Dad was getting rest, and that was what she wanted. She said he was just so tired, and, you know, that was about the extent of the conversation, but she was well ready to go home. Mm-hmm. She said she would only be there until Tuesday, and then they would send her home because they needed the room for other patients. And that's that's about it. Like I said, she sounded fine. She was not in any pain, any more pain than normal. That you know didn't change her personality any. And we laughed and talked, and it was a normal conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I I had no indication that anything was wrong at that time. Okay. Um, when they got there, they were put into separate rooms. And per the records, medical records that we have, mom denies that she is having any pain and she is assisted to the bedside pot. And again, I I was talking to you earlier about her arthritis in her hip and she slept in a recliner. Now she's in a bed where she has to be pulled up and swung around on the bed. So that was going to be more painful for her. And I called and talked to her on the phone and I stupidly said, how's your spa going? And that's when she told me it was hard getting out of the bed, and they're only going to be there a few days until Sheila got there, and they were going to be released on Tuesday the 13th. And I told her I would let April know, which I did. Um, I called April and told her what was going on, and she said, well, I'm going to go see Francis, and she showed up on Sunday. So, April, I'd like to ask you, because you sent me a picture that day of Mom, and I want to ask you how Mom was doing when you visited her on Sunday. Okay, when I visited Miss Francis and Mr. Southern, I walked in there. Of course, I gave her a hug, and um, we was talking, and she having a good time, and she said she um wanted her bag so she could put her lipstick on, comb her hair. Uh, she ate her uh, lunch while I was there. And um, her lunch or supper while I was there. And we was looking at Mr. Southern's phone because he was having problems with his phone to see what was going on with his telephone. It was just a normal day. But she said she had the urge to use the bathroom. She felt like she had to get up. But she said, oh, I forgot I have on a catheter. And I was like, Miss 
Francis a catheter? You never wear a catheter. And she said, yeah, they put a catheter in me. And I was like, well, a catheter? You know, I was shocked. And then um, she was talking, we was talking about um, her pain and that uh, they had put her, she told me they had put her on morphine because her pain medication that she was taking made her constipated. So they decided to put her on morphine. I'm like, morphine? You know, I was just just shocked when she was telling me uh, all of this stuff, a catheter, morphine. This Miss Francis, you know, a couple of years that I'd known her, a few years that I'd known her, she had never been on a a catheter. She would always get up. And uh, I always help up to go to the bathroom or whatever. But a a catheter? So I was just, I was really confused, but that day she was in good spirits, and um, I just can't believe from Sunday to Friday what had happened, and it it, it was just, oh, and still to this day when I think about it, it really makes me want to cry, so I try not to, but um. You know, it was just she was just in a very good mood that day. Her, uh, Mr. Southern, we talked, laughed. Like I said, she put on her makeup, her lipstick. We combed her hair. She ate. Everything was fine. And I took pictures, and I saw pictures of Marsha, how she was doing good. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it was just something. And like I said, to this day, I even hate to talk about it because it brings tears. It, you know, to my eyes, and it's just hard to talk about. Yeah. What did but she say to you as you were leaving April? She told me that she kissed me on my jaw and told me she loved me, and uh, she'll see me next. She said, I can't it was either next Tuesday or next Thursday that she would see me. But you know that um, she was telling me y'all was um, you and Sheila was coming and uh, you know, y'all let me know everything, all the details and all and I was like, Okay and gave me a big old kiss and she said, I love you, April and I hugged and I loved that. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. like I said, it still hurts to this day to even think about it. You know, so whew. forgive me. I'm sorry. That's okay, hon. You were the the last person that she got to hug and was able to talk to and clearly say she loved you. So I'm very, very glad of that for you, really, because she did. We do also. Yes. So so they tell mom, mom was taking hydrocodone acetophetamine. And if you recall that I said earlier that the nurse had given her 50 micrograms of fentanyl, which we think is light lidoderm, nobody knows it's a narcotic, and shame on us, but we didn't, we do now. But they tell her that her hydrocodone acetophetamine is causing constipation, which is why they changed her to morphine, a stronger narcotic. A side effect of all opioids is constipation. So that's an outright lie. Monday, I contacted visiting angels in their area, and I discussed getting help for mom. David, the person I talked to, sent me an email with information, 
and told me he would be glad to meet with us as soon as I got down to Georgia. We could meet. And I called to give Mom the information, uh, but she didn't answer the phone. Dad did. And Dad said she was sleeping. So I relayed the information to him that I was checking on additional help, and we would meet with them as soon as, you know, they came home and I got down there. And Tuesday I called again, and Dad said Mom was sleeping, and she wasn't eating and drinking. So I called and talked to the nurse there on duty and asked her what they were giving her, and she said morphine, Ativan, and fentanyl. I made the comment, we didn't check her in for you to check her out, and I don't know why you're giving her morphine. And she stated that her 10-year-old daughter broke her arm, and that's what they were giving her the same amount. So I believe that. During this time, we don't know anything that's going on until after I get the medical records because Dad doesn't know what's going on either. They're not telling him anything. And this part gets hard for me. So on June the 12th at 9.05 in the morning, even after Mom said she was not in pain, and they state there was no observable pain indicators, the doctor there ordered 100 micrograms fentanyl patch in addition to the morphine and the Ativan that they had already had her on. And they changed her at 1034 from respite care to end-of-life pain management palliative care. They had no intentions of letting her go home. And that's why the medical records are so important, because when you go back and you read what they say, you find out exactly what was going on, except unless they go in there and change or falsify the records so that you don't know. But I don't think they ever thought that we were going to go to that. I think they just assumed that we would be like everybody else and just let it go. Our mom died peacefully in her sleep. Um, They picked the wrong family for that. The records indicated at 10.50, the nurse put on 250 microgram patches of fentanyl. At 1.15 in the afternoon, their records state on the patient, guarded movements, wincing on movement, body language is rigid, fists are clenched, knees pulled up, pulling or pushing away, striking out. At this time when she did that, they gave her more morphine and Ativan in their records for pain and anxiety. I'm sorry. June the 13th, 2017, the day they were told they would be going home, the medical records state the patient remains tearful and worried. She is unable to be consoled, distracted, or reassured. Many indications of the patient being too lethargic to respond, but no observable pain indicators. But once she does wake up in the afternoon, she's agitated and restless, but she says no pain. She's given lorazepam, which is the same thing as Ativan, which acts on the nerves and brain to induce a calming effect. It is a benzodiazepine drug. In researching it, It states that elderly may not experience relief of anxiety with lorazepam and it may interact with narcotics 
which is what she was being given with the fentanyl and the morphine. Yes, thank you. I want to talk a little, take time to talk about these drugs for those of you who have never experienced this before. It's important for you to recognize the names and know the effects of them before they administer them. And let me say that in a case when someone has cancer or they're in horrendous pain and you know your days are limited to the disease and they explain what will happen with the drugs and it will decrease your pain, then it's your choice. And nobody would fault you for making that decision. But you must be informed about what the drugs will do and you must consent to that. And I'm not saying that these drugs are horrible for everybody in every situation. I'm saying when you're not dying and nobody tells you what the drugs are going to do to you, it is wrong to give that to anybody. The charts refer, refer to different names throughout my mom's medical records. I don't know if that's to confuse a novice or why they do it. Fentanyl is the same as duragesic. Ativan is the same as lorazepam. Morphine is the same as roxanol. And all of these were being given to mom on a regular basis. Fentanyl is 100 times more potent than morphine and 50 times more potent than heroin. It is the most potent opioid pain reliever available. When used in a patch, it releases the drug over a period of 48 to 72 hours, and it's typically changed every three days. However, it can continue to be effective for 13 to 24 hours after the patch is removed. This is an important part of the story, as I'll point out later. Older patients are more likely to experience adverse effects, especially a depressed respiratory system. Fentanyl works by binding to the body's opioid receptors, which are found in areas of the brain that control pain and emotions. Some effects are drowsiness, nausea, confusion, constipation, sedation, respiratory depression and arrest, hallucinations, unconsciousness, coma, and death. Fentanyl patches may cause serious or life-threatening breathing problems, especially during the first 24 to 72 hours of treatment and any time your dose is increased. Let me say that again. Any time your dose is increased. She went from 50 to 100, and she, I read to you what her reactions were. Rigid body, fist clenched, striking out. They didn't care. It's life-threatening. They didn't care. Taking certain medications with fentanyl may increase the risk of serious or life-threatening breathing problems, sedation, or coma. And yet, they gave mom lorazepam, Ativan, that same afternoon after they doubled her patch to 100. Morphine, or also called broxanol, changes how your body responds to pain. Some side effects from that, nausea, vomiting, constipation, drowsiness, dizziness, mental mood change, agitation, confusion, hallucination, stomach pain, difficulty urinating. Older adults may be more sensitive to the side effects, 
especially confusion, drowsiness, slow or shallow breathing. And yet, throughout, they continued to tell us that morphine would help her breathe better. The risk of serious side effects such as slow breathing, severe drowsiness may be increased if this medication is taken with other products that may also cause breathing problems, such as opioid pain relievers, drugs for sleep or anxiety, such as lorazepam. Symptom of an overdose may include slow, shallow breathing, slow heartbeat, coma. And these are the drugs they were giving her. Ativan, same as lorazepam, is used for anxiety, and a few side effects from that are dizzy, tiredness, blurred vision, forgetfulness, amnesia, difficulty concentrating, constipation, nausea, and depressed breathing. So all drugs that they were giving her in hospice and that they give most people, almost every, I hear them talk about the ham sandwich and Haldol, Ativan, and morphine. Haldol is also used like Ativan. So all drugs they gave her caused constipation, slow breathing, difficulty concentrating, possibly hallucinations, and nausea. But in a hospice environment, it's okay to cause these horrible effects on people. My mom was 87 years old. And not because she was dying from a disease. It says extreme caution and monitoring should be used. However, in mom's case, as in other hospice cases, those cautions don't matter since their intent is to hasten their death. It is not coincidental. Another drug they used on mom, I'll try to pronounce it, um, soclopromine transdermal patch is used to prevent nausea, which they caused, and they put it on the side of her neck. I came in the room and I asked my sister, what is that on her neck? What are they doing now? She said it's to keep her from being nauseous. Some side effects from that are dry mouth, drowsiness, dizziness, constipation, serious side effects, mental mood change, confusion, agitation, difficulty urinating, fast, irregular heartbeat, trouble breathing. Older adults may be more sensitive to the side effects of these drugs, especially dizziness and drowsiness. Drug interactions may increase your risk for serious side effects. If you're taking other products that cause drowsiness, drugs for sleep or anxiety, muscle reluctance, and narcotic pain relievers. Symptoms of an overdose, severe drowsiness, mental mood change, confusion, hallucinations, fast, irregular heartbeat, seizures. This is information we didn't know, but later we wish we had had this. Please research any drug that they're going to give you or your loved ones before they start this plan. These are dangerous drugs, and together they're more dangerous. They're lethal. The records indicate that mom was unable to respond, no observable pain, lethargic. However, when she wakes up late in the afternoon, she is agitated and restless, but she says no pain when they ask, and they give her lorazepam, same as Ativan. She was sad, frightened, frowning, tense, 
unable to console or reassure. So they gave her morphine, even though the records state she says her pain level was four. That night she cried. She was worried and anxious and unable to rate her pain, and she was sad, depressed. It is horrible reading how my precious mom was being tortured by them, and we weren't able to help her. They continued to give her morphine and Ativan to shut her up. We have no doubt that they thought by the time my sister and I got there that she would be dead. It says she was unable to respond, although the records indicate that they gave her a nebulizer treatment. Really? I believe the document lies to make it look like they were administering help to her. Why on earth would you give a breathing treatment to someone that you're giving drugs to to suppress their breathing and ultimately stop their breathing in their heart? doesn't make sense to me. Again, not knowing any of this on June the 14th, after they were not sending her home, Sheila and I decide, decided, in spite of the nurse telling us it was a small amount like they gave, she gave her 10-year-old, that we wanted the drugs stopped. They were making her sleep. We wanted her to be able to go home. We placed a three-way call. I got dropped. But Sheila was able to talk to the nurse. So, Sheila, can you tell us what your conversation was, please? Yes. Um, I just spoke with her and told her we wanted mom taken off the morphine. We didn't want her to have any of the pain medications because we wanted her to be awake. Um, The records indicate that I told her I didn't care if my mom was in pain. I would never have said that. I probably said, we just want to have her awake. Um, But they never... They never mentioned the fentanyl when I was speaking or Marsha was speaking to her. Um, And we were not aware that fentanyl was even an opioid, much less something that could be causing the problem. And we were not aware at that time that the patch had been doubled. Okay. Um, Um, Were you done? Yes. Okay. Um, Okay, so the medical documents that I read... State, um, well, this nurse called herself throughout this, and we'll talk about her later, but not saying her name. She calls herself the narrator, and it says, patient receives pain meds as she requests, but it is clear for the doc that they gave her pain meds when she was sleeping, even if they they made the determination if she was frowning that she was in pain. And this says that they explained to my sister that she has, or at least they put it in the records, that she has declined over the last several days. This is their words. She was talking on Monday and eating, though not much. Now she is lethargic and will not open her eyes long enough to take meds or eat. She has difficulty swallowing, and this morning she pocketed her food instead of swallowing. She, this time talking about my sister, is upset that Dr the one that was on call there, had changed her mother's orders while her doctor, my mom's medical doctor, has been away. They were all aware that we were taking them home when my sister got there, and now this nurse, narrator, is saying she's too weak. They continue to say that we say it's okay 
for them to continue with the fentanyl patch. So we don't know what a fentanyl patch is. So I just want to make sure everybody knows, know what the drugs are. The medical records state that they told the doctor that we did not want her to have any more pain meds or anxiety medication, meds to be held at this time. And yet they continue to say that we approved 100 micrograms fentanyl, which we know nothing about and certainly not how powerful it is. It was made very clear to all the staff that we wanted to take mom home and that we were going to arrange for someone else to take care of her, but they weren't going to let that happen. The records state over and over again that we don't want them to give her any more pain meds and that we want to take her home. They make comments, like Sheila said earlier, that we say if she has to be in pain, so what? And we never said that. So Sheila arrives on June the 14th, and understand she's about six hours away. I'm 13 hours away. So she gets there in the afternoon on June the 14th. And she is Sheila, come back on and tell us how you found mom, what your conversation was with the hospice staff there, and then later you got to see the doctor. So can you do that? I hope so. <clears throat> mom was very lethargic. She was almost in a comatose state. Um, she slurred her words when she could talk with me. She slept a lot. I was shocked when I saw her. Um, especially knowing that she had been fine on Sunday. Um, I asked to see the doctor, and they said he would be around, but he did not show up till the next morning because he'd already been there that day. Um, so when he did show up the next morning, I talked with him about her condition, asked her, him how she went from fine on Sunday to Wednesday being, or by then it was Thursday morning, being in a comatose state, he said, well, when you move a delicate patient like this, sometimes they get worse and this happens. But man, my question with that is, if that's true, why didn't you tell us that on Friday and we could have had made the decision to come then and take care of her and not take a chance of her being um, in a delicate condition and, and getting to this point? I also by then knew about the fentanyl being changed from 50 to 100, and I talked to him about changing that back, thinking that was the only thing we hadn't done that might could possibly make a difference, still not knowing it was such a strong opioid. And he said, the next time we change it, we'll look at that. Never saw this doctor again. We had another doctor come in after that that was on call over um, the weekend, and all he could do was just sit and talk to us. I don't think he ever even looked at mom the whole time. So we never got to discuss with him again about changing that patch. And to this day, I don't know whether it, it would have made a difference. It was probably already too late by that point. She was not eating. She was not drinking. Um, my daughter arrived from Maryland on Thursday also, and she was trying to get mom to take a few sips of water and get, feed her something. And, and it was very difficult every time mom would get a sip of water or a little bit of food, we'd have to remind her to swallow because obviously Marsha just read a lot of the side effects from these drugs, and one of them is uh, difficulty in swallowing. Um, we didn't know that at the time, so we just thought it was part of the condition. Um, 
think, Marsha, that's all. Oh, I did, excuse me, I did have a conversation with the same nurse who had enrolled mom and the same nurse who had come and taken them to respite care along with one of the other nurses and the um, HR person. It wasn't HR, but um, another, anyway, there were three of them there from hospice talking to me. And I Social worker. So thank you, social worker. I um, She had told me that mom's fluid level was going down because mom's ankles were very swollen at the time, and she said it was going down. And I said, well, that's a good sign. And she said, no, not necessarily. It could mean that the water's, the fluids are going up around her heart and may create more problems. And I said, well, can we put her on LASIK so that we'll keep that from happening? And she said, no, in hospice we can't administer any life-saving drugs. I said, well, can I take her to the hospital, which we were in the hospital. It was the back part of the hospital, and we could have just taken her bed and taken her through the halls and taken her to the front part of the building, and she'd be in the hospital. Um and I was told, well, sure, we could do that, but they would have to call an ambulance. The ambulance would have to come, take her off the bed, put her on a cot or cart, take her around to the front of the building into emergency, and admit her to the hospital, and we would have to take her off hospice. And she at that time told me that if we did that, they'd start filling mom full of fluids. That'd be the first thing they'd do. And by doing that, it could create um problems with the congestive heart failure, and mom could actually drown. Uh, um, one of The social worker looked at me and said, well, maybe you might want to do that, and then you'll never have any regrets. You'll know for sure. And that nurse looked at that social worker with the dirtiest look, and the social worker actually backed up a step. Um, so I'm sure she was telling her, back off. Don't even say that. And the um, nurse, the other nurse continued to tell me, that we did not want to move my mom, that it would be very painful, and we would take a chance on making her worse. I think I am through now. Um, I want you to tell them what she told you about mom being lethargic after being off of the morphine and Ativan for 24 well, hours. After 24, after 24 hours, she told me that the um, morphine was out of her system now, and she's still the same way. So obviously it isn't the morphine, it's that mom is at the end of life, and we just need to accept that. Um, I now know that it takes longer than 24 hours for, for morphine to get out of the system, especially when you've been given all the other drugs that mom was given. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. So this is June the 15th, and on my trip down, I called and tried to talk to mom um, in the afternoon, and she slurred her language, like Sheila said. Um, but she did tell me she loved me, and I knew what she was saying, and I treasured those words, even though she slurred them. I asked Sheila if she had had a stroke, and why couldn't she talk? And Sheila just said, I, I don't know, I don't know. And I said, take her to the hospital now. And that's when Sheila told me the same thing that the nurse had told her, that it would get fluid around her heart and that she would die from drowning. And I said, well, I don't want that. And she said, they want you to wait until you get here and see her, and then we'll decide. Um, it takes me 13 hours to get there. And I got there, and we again talked to the other nurse, the hospice office nurse that came to mom's mom and dad's house wasn't there so we talked to the nurse that was on duty uh 
woman who calls herself the narrator. And we asked her that, and she said the same thing, and that it would be a horrible way to die, and you don't want your die to you don't want your mom to die that way, do you, sweetie? I mean, she talked like she was so concerned and caring and, you know, just like she just gave us this long speech and told us about her grandfather when he died, that she was touching his shoulder, and he reached up when he took his last breath, and she felt like she was touching the hand of God. And she talked about... um the morphine, the morphine would help her breathe because at that time we still have not let them give her the morphine and the Ativan. We've held off on that. And she was saying, well, it would help her breathe if you would just, you know, let us give her a little bit of morphine. It's a small amount of morphine. And every time she would, mama would make a sound or furrow her brow or do anything, they would say, see, that's a sign of pain. And in their medical records, they say educated the daughters on signs of pains, but daughters are still very resistant and refuse to let us give her any pain medication and say if she has to hurt, then she hurts. So um, I took Dad after I got there, and I traveled down with my two pups with me. And we went in. They, they were good about letting me take them in. And then um, I took Dad home. And my sister and her daughter stayed there that night. And we had decided if we believed mom was in pain, then she would let them give her a little bit of pain medicine. So that night um, they convinced you, Sheila. Um, Can you talk about that? Um. Yeah, they kept saying mom was in pain, even though she was not really aware or awake. Um, So finally, and I don't know what time, you have the record there, and I'm sorry I don't have that in front of me. They kept um, telling me mom was in pain. So I finally sat down in the chair, and I cried, and I finally allowed them to give her a little bit of morphine. And I kept saying, are you sure it's just a little bit? And the nurse kept saying, honey, it's just a whisper. It's it's just a whisper of morphine. And um, it's the same thing I gave my daughter when she broke her arm. And um, they they were almost rude to me in pushing me to to give her something. And tell them how you made the comment that them talking about pain was suggesting to mom that she was in pain, and the nurse said she can speak for herself. Well, she couldn't. She couldn't, right? She couldn't. No. I never did understand that. Okay. So, April, I want to bring you back in with us. Um, you came to see us at the hosp- at the facility on Friday, and you saw Mom for the first time since Sunday. Are you still there, April? Oh, April? I'm sorry, my dog went to bark. That's okay. <laughs> I had to call You're on mute down. too. Okay, so on Friday you came in and you saw Mom for the first time since Sunday. And what were your thoughts? I just couldn't believe it. 
I just couldn't believe it. Miss Francis was up talking, and then when I got there that Friday, she couldn't say nothing, do nothing, nothing. So, I, I mean, I was just, I was shocked. I was just shocked. I just couldn't believe it. You know, how can you go from us talking, you put on your lipstick, combing your hair, and then Sunday, and then when I get there Friday, you know, you just laying there saying nothing. I, I just, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. It, it really got next to It really yeah, did. It was, it was mm-hmm. hard. It was hard. Yes. 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 Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So, um, Hillary had to leave, my sister's daughter. So Sheila, Dad, and I stayed around the clock with her. And um, I think Dad was telling you earlier, or or maybe April was, that they had a little couch there. And we sat on the couch. Dad sat in the chair. It's kind of a recliner chair and slept. And we just stayed with her around the clock. Um, they let me bring my pups in, and they stayed there in the room with us. And the only time we left was to take them outside for a walk and, you know, one of us might go pick up something to eat while the other one stayed there. They gave us a pamphlet about to read about her dying and showing us the signs. They kept coming in and checking her fingernails and her toenails, looking for blue, which is also a sign of fentanyl overdose, but we didn't know that. I contacted her doctor in India and asked him if he knew what was going on. He didn't appear to know, but he said, I'll call them and see. I explained to him that we wanted to take her home and that we wanted to give her insure and water and we wanted her to be strong enough to be able to come home. He said, well, you'll have to get more help. And I said, we've already contacted somebody. We just need them to let us get help her to get stronger so she can come home. And he... Uh, texted me back and said that he had given authority. They had he had told them to let us give her insure and water. They gave us room temperature insure, and we would put it in her mouth, the insure or the water, and rub her throat and coax her into drinking. And told her we were trying to get her better to go home, and she said, "Mm-hmm." that she couldn't talk, but she understood. And this is, remember, we had taken her off of the morphine and Ativan, and it had only started back late, late Thursday night. So this is on Friday. So she's, uh, you know, I guess maybe coming a little bit out of it, but, you know, as Sheila said, they convinced us that she was in pain. So um, we just kept trying to get her better. We didn't leave her bedside we were powerless because we were ignorant we suspected that they were doing something to her but we just couldn't believe that the words were so convincing and they act like they cared the friday the nurse who calls herself the narrator in her medical records came in to change mom's fentanyl patch and after she put the first 50 microgram on i said don't put the other one on And, again, as Sheila stated, we're grasping at straws at anything that could be causing her to be in a coma. She motions for us to go out into the hall and says, 
hearing is the last thing to go. If we don't give it to her, she's going to go through withdrawals, and she'll be in a lot of pain, and we'll be chasing the pain, and you don't want to do that. So we're ignorant little sheep being led to the slaughter. We believed what she said, and, you know, we said, are you sure? Yes, we're sure. We cried out in the hall before we came back in because we didn't want Mom to know that we were upset. All of the conversations that we had with the nurses are in their medical records, even though they're falsified and say, we say, we don't care, she's in pain. But this particular conversation and about her putting that patch on and us saying don't do it, it's not even listed in there. It's not there. Afterwards, the day after, after Mama's doctor was back, we asked him, we told him what had happened with the sentinel patch that she said she'd go in withdrawals. He said, no, she wouldn't. He did not even know she was on 50. He thought she was still on 25 micrograms. And isn't that interesting? They kept trying to reposition her and turn her, and she would moan when they did that. They wanted to give her a suppository because she had a little bit of a fever. I asked them, will it hurt when you do it? And they said, well, yeah, she moans whenever we touch her. And I said, then don't do it. And she didn't have a high-grade fever. And they kept saying, we need to turn her. We need to pull her up. We need to do this. And we just declined. We said, no, it's going to hurt her. You're not going to do that. But later they mentioned that we want to hurt her, but they list that we refuse to let them give her a bath, pull her around, turn her over. Later I found out that rolling a patient on their side gets them hurting, they're in pain, and then they can convince you that they see they're, they're crying, they need more morphine, that we need to give them something. Fortunately, that's the one thing that we were able to do for mom that we didn't even realize we were doing, and we did not let them turn her, as we just didn't want them to hurt her anymore. At one point, we're rubbing her legs and arms with lotion, and she's not moaning, she's just laying there, we're just rubbing her arms and legs. And in the medical records, it states that we won't leave her alone and we won't let the medicine take effect. So it just it, reading the medical records is something that is very, very difficult but very enlightening. But imagine if you're having a nightmare and you furl your brow or you moan out or you wince and each time they give you more of the drug that caused you to hallucinate, have slow breathing, and be fearful. That is what they're doing to our loved ones. We don't know that, but we need to know that, and we need to guard against that. For days, we watched our precious mom, dad's wife, take her last breath at 6.20 a.m. on June the 20th, 2017, just barely over two years ago. This happened due to heavy opioids, antipsychotic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. But the certificate says congestive heart failure. That's a lie. The records comment the patient is resting peacefully now and appears to be in no respiratory distress or pain. What a contrast to what actually occurred those 11 horrible days. Hours after they had murdered her, two people from hospice came to the house bringing cold cuts and bread and plates and napkins and stuff. And the one they call hugging something was in there, and I could hear them talking. I came out of the bedroom not knowing who was there, 
saw them, she came over to hug me. I turned, walked back to my bedroom, and shut the door. It was everything I could do to order her out of my mom's kitchen. My mom just died hours ago, and you're standing there acting like nothing, like, you know, we're celebrating. We're not celebrating. The same day, we get a phone call from Hobbs Home Care Products saying they want to come get their oxygen machine. And I asked the guy, I said, are you serious? My mom died hours ago, and you want your equipment? By all means, come get it. How insensitive people can be. Our mom didn't even know we were with her. We didn't get to comfort her. We didn't get to say goodbye. She didn't get to say goodbye. They took her right away to die in her own home, to die during God's time, to be alert, to make her own choices. From the first day after she arrived, they drugged her against her will as well as against mine, dad's, my sister's objections. The day that mom passed, Sheila took dad to urgent care. And Sheila, I'll let you come in on that. Yeah, dad had been having um, some issues um, and I decided to take him to urgent care. It was discussed that he had a UTI infection or a bladder infection. Um, she wasn't sure which, so we she put him on an antibiotic. And within a couple of days, the symptoms he had were gone. So I truly believe that that was why Dad was so tired and and why they were able to force this issue and get Mom to leave the house because dad was actually physically sick and nobody bothered to say, well, Thurwood, why don't you go to the doctor while I stay here with Francis and make sure she's okay. That was never discussed. It was let's take them to respite. So I I want to say, um, dad didn't say, but I want to say that within a month after that, mom and dad would have celebrated their 68th anniversary. And mom was looking forward to that. That will be this month. And dad was going to turn 90 in November, and we were going to plan a party for that. Mom had been talking about it. She was excited about it. This was not a lady that was on her deathbed. It just is not true. So after this all happened, I checked with at least a dozen attorneys, and nobody would take the case. But all of them said, continue to ask, you know, talk to other people because, you know, you probably have a case, but we can't take it. But do continue, and you've got two years to do this. Finally, one attorney was honest and said, well, it sounds like you've talked to a lot of people. Would you like for me to tell you why nobody will take your case? And I said, yeah, I would like to know. He said, because there's not enough money in it for a firm to take it. Hospice has big pockets, and they don't settle out of court. After my dad moved in with me, and I I know we're running short on time, so let me try to get through this. After dad moved in, I received insurance paperwork from Blue Cross Blue Shield. The amount of money that hospice was charging for the 1st to the 20th of June to murder my mom was $35,105. The lady that I spoke to said they had denied the claim because they had to take it from the 1st through the 8th when they were in their home and the 9th through the 20th. Apparently, 
they didn't do that because Medicare is their primary insurance. And so Medicare wound up paying $7,874.94 for those 20 days of taking my mama's life. In previous months, they had paid 3546 the maximum 4408 The total payment, the Medicare payment from November the 16th, 2016 through May 2017 was $27,015. The aggregate Medicare hospice cap that year was $27,820. However, once they paid the additional 7874 they were over the cap. I'm not sure how that happened, but the point is that each year there is a cap on what they will pay, to Medicare will pay for hospice. After that, it is my understanding that hospice does not get any more money. Even if they are a nonprofit hospice, they are still profiting. There is more money for a patient when they are in the unit than there is if they are at home, and there is more money if they are on palliative pain management care than there is if they're on respite care. So quickly they changed mom on that Monday, and their fee went up tremendously. I mean, I, I think it's like $900 a, a day versus 182 or something like that. I don't have those figures in front of me. So when I was talking to the Blue Cross Blue Shield people or the Medicare, they suggested I contact KEPRO, which is Keystone Peer Review Organization, and they're supposed to be oversight for care management and quality improvement. I contacted them. After sending them the information, I received 158 pages of my mom's medical records. They sent them 266. After they read them, they came back and said that they followed the protocol and they were within their standards. My comment was they obviously have low standards. I also talked to um, CAHPS, which is Medicare Consumer Assessment of Healthcare System and Providers. They sent a survey asking us how our experience was. Um, they got very, very low ratings, and I sent um, a one-page, single-type documentation of what had occurred. They never contacted us. We never heard back from them. We thought this case was unique because Dad had been the hospice chaplain, and they were trying to keep him from being ill. That may have been part of it, but I believe another part of it was because she was at their cap. Another part is because she was complaining about their services and they knew we were going to get someone else. So I think all of it together happened. But in December of 2017, um, Sheila and I called around and we found Ron Panzer with Hospice Patient Alliance. That's when we heard about stealth euthanasia and that it's happening across the world. Our case is not unique. But we feel guilty because she didn't come there immediately. I didn't come immediately. Nobody knew what was going on. We had the guilt because we let them give her the medicine, because we didn't insist on taking her to the hospital. It shouldn't be us feeling guilty. They should bear the guilt. Um, on the second anniversary of my mom's death last month, I posted a picture of the two nurses that tricked them and took them down there, which are complicit in their murder. They're not the only ones. But the one nurse called me and said, take my picture off 
I did not give you permission. I told her I would, but then I asked her why she felt the need to trick my parents. And we had a long, not very pleasant conversation, but one of the things that stands out is she said, if you want to blame somebody, blame yourself. You should have come when we called you. And she thought she was talking to my sister. She doesn't know us apart because I didn't talk to her. But as Sheila has said, she said, it was not a big deal. Don't worry about it. We'll take care of them. They took care of them, all right. I've contacted attorneys, the president's office, uh, Dr. Phil, you know, anybody I can think of. And at this point, people say we're sorry, but nothing's being done. But we are not giving up. We're going to continue pushing forward. It, we're not giving up. And there are a couple of links I'd like to give you. Um, hospicepatients.org, lifelegaldefensefoundation.org, and epcc.ca, which is Euthanasia Prevention Coalition. Um, I know I haven't left hardly any time, but of my guest speakers, does anybody else have anything they want to say in the last two minutes? I'd like to say something, Marcia. It's me, Heidi. Yes. At no time... When this started, did they ever contact us, and we live 1.2 miles from your parents' home? We live less than 20 minutes from the Perry Hospital, and they never contacted us. It was like we didn't exist and couldn't do anything. But they had a plan, Heidi, mm -hmm. and that would have interfered with their plan, just like if Sheila had come or if I had come. That would have interfered with their plan. That's what I'm pointing out, that they knew we were close and they didn't bother. Right, right. I right. would like to say a word. Go ahead, Daddy. <clears throat> On the night before they came, your mama never did turn her head toward me. Before going to sleep, and I got a big kiss. I didn't get one that night, but I did at the funeral. So I'll I'll take that kiss and remember it till I get to see her again. Good night. Okay. Thank you to all of our listeners for listening. I hope it has given you some information that can save your loved one's life. That's why we do this show. That's why it's important to me. That's why it's my passion. <clears throat> I'm sorry. So we won't stop, and I'll be back two weeks from now with another guest speaker. So thank you so much for listening in. Marty, thank you. I don't know if you have time to talk about the summit. No, we don't. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll catch that right. later. Thank you, everyone. Thank you all to right. all my sisters. I love you. Love you. Bye-bye. Love you, too. Bye. Good night.